Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and ask that even according to our, the, this theme that we've called uh, this series in Luke, Apprenticing Jesus, that you would uh, maybe even just begin today to show us why we would even care about apprenticing someone who lived on earth thousands of years ago lives in some of our hearts today. Why would we care so much about this person? And I pray that you would do what no preacher, uh, no mere words written on a page, uh, no arguments or fancy rhetoric can possibly do. What only your spirit can do. Open our eyes to see the risen Jesus Christ in all of his glory and all of his beauty. And I pray that through your working of the Spirit in our hearts, we would be captivated by this man and we would desire more than anything through the suffering, through the challenges, through the conflicts of faith that we might encounter, through the difficulties, we would want more than anything to follow this guy. May you work that in our hearts today even as we read about you through your holy word, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the beauty of words and so forth. Words, you know, those uh, arrangements of letters that come together to form things that point to actual events or people or things or thoughts or ideas. That when these words are strung together into sentences can actually carry some significant meaning. Can carry information or data uh, or relay uh, uh, forms of communication to one another. The beauty of words. And in this day, uh, don't have to tell any of you, but we live in an unprecedented age of words where we have immediate, nonstop access to any of the words that we could possibly want. Some of you don't have like page Bibles. You are reading your Bibles on a device. You can instantly access all of God's word right there on your phone. Uh, we have instant access to any amount of information. How many of you have gotten lost and you just looked it up on your phone? You're like, everything's perfect. This is awesome. Where do I eat? I'll look it up on my phone. Where do I go? I'll look it up on my phone. How, you know, uh, should I take a nap or should I go and be productive? I'll ask Siri. You know, everything is instantly accessible and it's amazing. I remember the first conversation I had with my dad. Of, uh, he's a you know he's a car guy. Uh, kind of got a mechanical, uh, photographic m memory in mind. And I, I remember having this conversation with him. He was wanting to remodel uh, a particular car, and he was uh, stuck on a particular process. And I'm like, dude, Dad, just YouTube it, bro. And he's like, you what it? And I'm like, YouTube it. And he's, he's all, what's that? And I'm like, dude, there's billions of videos on this thing. And you can, you can find a tutorial for just about anything your heart desires. How to put an engine in your car. There's probably a tutorial for that with great music in the background too. You know, how to, how to eat right and exercise daily. How to under, uh, take up underwater basket weaving. You know, all of that is on YouTube. You can do all of it. And he's like, oh, this is amazing. On one end, we have access to so many words and it's beautiful. Uh, it's, on one hand, it's a blessing to be able to navigate every nook and cranny of Los Angeles using only GPS and Yelp reviews, you know? Like, we, we, can, we can do so much, and yet, on the other hand, there, there would have to be times where we would say, it's not quite the blessing that I was hoping for. You know, sometimes too many words is a curse, like WebMD. <laughs> I, remember this, I remember this time I had, like, a side ache, 
And I, I had a doctor specifically tell me, don't ever Google search physical symptoms. And I did anyway. I had a side ache. It was nothing. So I went onto Google. I web searched. WebMD came up. And lo and behold, for my side ache were listed many words. About 91 possibilities of what was going on in my body, ranging in intensity from a common cold to like tuberculosis, okay? And knowing me, you know, my mind is not going to gravitate towards a common cold. I'm always going to take the worst example. Oh, I have tuberculosis, you know, whatever. I don't even know what that is. Like, I'm going to die. Like, every time I go to Google to see what's wrong with my health, it always ends up with me saying, I'm going to die, you know? And my wife just in the kitchen just yelling, like, turn the internet off, silly person. Sometimes there are too many words. Sometimes they're beautiful. Sometimes there's just too many. Uh, the author, uh, the popular science uh, author, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Blink, his whole book is in exactly about that. He writes, we live in a world saturated with information. We have virtually unlimited amounts of data at our fingertips at all times. But what I have sensed is an enormous frustration with the unexpected costs of knowing too much, of being inundated with information. Listen to this. We have come to confuse information with understanding. Lots of words. Some of them are beautiful, but sometimes there's so many we just, we, we don't have the meaning we were hoping to get. We're just, there's too many. Perhaps some of us would say we're thirsty. We have more access to words and information and data and stuff than we've ever been. And yet we're simultaneously more thirsty for something beyond millions of empty words, for something beyond millions of mere uh, data points or information or coordinates. What we want, perhaps, is meaning. To cut, be, to cut through, pierce through the, the barrage of information to find the stuff that just really matters. What Malcolm Gladwell would call a blink. The ability to bring out an enormous amount of meaningful information from what's right in front of you. If you too, uh, you're listening to this and you, want, you, you have felt the flood of information and yet the lack of meaning, and perhaps the restlessness and the stress that has come with that, you might find this account in the Gospel of Luke helpful. It turns out the people of ancient Capernaum who had no internet were not very different from us. They seemed to be longing for something real and meaningful too. Let me read this text. Luke says, And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. This is God's holy word. 
I want to talk to you this morning not just about the beauty of words, not just about any words. I want to talk to you about words that are not empty. Look at this first verse. In verse 31, uh, the first two, verse 31 and 32, and he went down to Capernaum, a city uh, of Galilee, a small town in the neighboring region of Galilee there. Uh, And it says that he was teaching them, the crowds, on the Sabbath day, and they were astonished at his teaching because his word possessed authority. Now, Luke isn't saying here that he, he, uh, he's not saying that he possessed authority in, in a sense that he was a charismatic speaker that wowed the crowds. He's not pointing to his, his rhetorical abilities or his fancy words or his ability to hold a crowd, although I'm sure he could do all of that. Uh, but there's a, a little bit of background here from the normal manner of teaching in Jesus' day. Rabbis, when they would teach crowds, when they would teach in synagogues, their custom was to uh, quote other rabbis and other sources. This was the common way of teaching. In fact, the more advanced you were as a rabbi, the better at your job that you were, the more sources you were able to stuff into your teaching. And so teachings in synagogues and in gathering places by rabbis were often just a conglomeration of quotations this person said this, and this person said this, and Rabbi Shimei, you know, Himel, and Rabbi Shimei, and this person, and well, if you look at this person, and they were just quotation after quotation after quotation. When, uh, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 about the crowds, it says he saw the crowds and had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. I just wonder if these crowds were like some of the, just some of the ways that we feel today, inundated with so much stuff and technology and words and information and data and pressure and to-do lists, and the, the list goes on, harassed and helpless. I have more information at my disposal than ever before, and yet I am more restless than I ever dreamed or imagined. And here in this moment, He preaches in a way that causes them to say, this guy is the real deal. He's got authority. In other words, while other rabbis quoted other sources, and you can think of this as like a secondhand theology. They were giving to the people what they had heard from somebody else. This other person, Jesus, comes in on the scene, and he doesn't quote anybody. He interacts directly with the text. Teachers generally did not do that. They interacted with the person that came before them, who came before them, you know, who came after another person and another person, citation after citation, after quotation after quotation, rarely interacting perhaps with the text. Jesus comes in and he only interacts with the scriptures, with the word of God. This was not secondhand. He was directly speaking from it. And it seemed to come from his own experience. As you, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus speaking, not quoting anybody, just speaking out of his heart, but speaking like he means it. Like this stuff has really impacted him. Not a second-hand theology, but one of his own experience. And so while the learned of society are giving hungry, thirsty people, you know, and they're inundated with information, unable to give hungry, thirsty people anything aside from quotation marks, and regurgitated viewpoints and opinions, and perhaps a a soundbite or two, Jesus comes in, interacting directly with the Spirit of God's written Word. Not only that, but able to bring it to life in the minds and hearts of His listeners. 
You ever read the Bible and you're just reading a line and all of a sudden it just, a line just pops out at you like, gosh, that was for me. Or you ever talking to someone and they're just speaking to you and it's like God used a word that they said, just, just, just bringing it straight into your heart. Jesus is just doing this in spades and people are baffled at his authority. That authority would soon be put to the test. He whose words are not empty would soon come into conflict with evil words. Look at verse 33. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Uh, Or that is to say a person who was under the oppression of a demon, an, an evil spirit. Now if you're not used to reading this type of stuff, this might be a difficult thing to wrap your mind around. And, you know, ever since the Enlightenment, uh, we've had difficulty wrapping our minds around things like evil spirits. And, you know, modern thought is often very uh, dismissive of demons. Uh, More inclined, perhaps, to say, and this is kind of what you might hear, uh, that, you know, the biblical authors didn't have uh, the medical knowledge needed to diagnose mental illness thousands of years ago, which is what that is. Uh, therefore, they simply blamed demon, you know, they simply blamed a mental illness or a chemical imbalance on demons. And that's kind of the, the argument that, that comes along. Maybe that's something you're thinking right now. And yet when you read the scriptures, when you read the gospel accounts, you see episodes of demonic activity that is, is not like any medical condition you've ever seen. You see the, the sons of Sceva, seven, seven full-grown guys just getting, just getting whooped by one person under the control of the devil. You see Judas being invaded by the devil, doing what he does later uh, in the Gospels. You see this legion, as he's called, for the many demons that, that that represents and the things that were happening. And it does not seem like the gospel writers were confused. Even today, in this room, you can talk to people. Uh, our intercessors, the people in our church who work hard at prayer and their accounts, they're not confused about the difference between mental illness and demonic activity. You can talk to our global friends Uh, Ron Miller in Thailand will blow your mind with some of his stories. Uh, Or uh, uh, the Russells in Tanzania, they'll blow your mind with their stories. They're not confused. Uh, You can talk to me. I can tell you some stories. But you don't have to take my word for it or just the word of a personal, untrained example. Uh, Take Richard Gallagher, for example. A board-certified psychiatrist and a professor of clinical psychiatry at the New York Medical College writing uh, in the Washington Post two years ago, spoke of a marked difference between mental illness, which is real, right, and demonization, which is also real, as we'll call it. In strange occurrences that he said, and I quote, exceeded what I could explain with my training. And so this board-certified professor of clinical psychiatry, Richard Gallagher, would go on to train people to see the difference between mental illness, chemical imbalances, which are, uh, which are real and true and have a whole set of solutions for them and treatment, and demonic activity. This is not like a believer here saying this. This is a scientist of the mind. But for whatever reason, you know, this is not Luke's intent, is to prove that demons exist. And for, 
someone that believes that God exists, that God is a personal being, this, demons aren't that far of a stretch. Luke isn't trying to convince us here. He's, he's trying to show us a picture of something. And what's interesting here to me is that these examples of demons, you know, the Bible's a big book, but most of the examples of demons happen in a small slice of the Bible. Can you guess where that is? The Gospels. And in the Gospels, those occurrences and depictions of demons happen again in a small slice of the Gospels. Can you guess where that is? In the Gospel of Luke, I think there's a little over 20 uh, mentions of demons. And most of those mentions are between chapter 4 and chapter 9. You know what that is? The earthly ministry of Jesus Christ in Galilee. When Jesus sets foot on the earth and he begins speaking words, it stirs something up. This is a guy who stirs things up. This is what Luke wants us to see. This is not an ordinary person we're talking about. He scares demons. This is what he does. And it's not just his words that are different, but he, uh, he has tremendous power. His words are not empty. Look at verse 34. And he cried out, the man that was oppressed by the devil, he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What, have you, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, he's, he's going to say three things here. And I, want, I, wanna, I just want to say at the outset that each of these things that he says seems to be an attempt to bring Jesus under control. And I, see, I want you to see what happens as a result of that. But the first line, ha, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, he literally, uh, literally in the Greek, he says something of this nature. What are you and me? What are you to me? Uh, or if I, could, if I could paraphrase it, why bother me? Or as the CLTB says it, uh, the Chris Lazo translation of the Bible. <laughs> why, why, why bother with the status quo, Jesus? Yeah, I'm here. I got a guy. You know, <laughs> We're together and stuff. You've got better things to do. Why, why change things? Why disrupt the status quo? Something I, I found often comes up whenever people are disrupting injustices or are taking part in liberation or showing mercy. Why disrupt the status quo? Why cause drama? Jesus, just leave things the way that they are. Don't you have better things to do? In fact, we see stuff like this uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 20. Phenomenal story where uh, Paul is rolling around town doing his thing. and He's just like healing and preaching, doing all sorts of stuff. And this, this servant girl, uh, actually a slave girl, uh, is is demonized. She's oppressed by a demon, and she's a fortune teller. This demon, here's another example, something that's a little beyond just a chemical imbalance. She's, she's telling people their future, uh, and she's doing this for her masters as a business, and she must be very good at it. This must be more than just a generic, you know, fortune cookie or something, because she's making them a lot of money. There's institutional structures here involved. And she starts harassing Paul. Mistake. For the demon, not for her. Be the best day of her life. 
He turns around, casts the demon out, walks off, and she's healed. It's amazing. And everyone is rejoicing, except for her masters. Look at what it says here in Acts chapter 16. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they rejoiced because Jesus is alive. No, no, that's not what it says. It says they brought Paul and his, his, other, uh, his other brothers before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar. There will always be people that say that to you when you start to stir things up. When you start to talk about Jesus, when you start to involve yourself in justice and mercy and redemption and renewal and uh, restoring, whenever your faith leaves the privatized caverns of your own thought life and starts to trickle out into society, you're always going to get these types of responses, just like Jesus. Look Look at the demon's second line. Have you come to destroy us? Short answer, yes. But he doesn't, he doesn't respond. And this was, this is a particular question he's asking. Uh, he speaks in the plural. Have you come to destroy us? A lot, of, a lot of authors and scholars think that he's referring to his host person. Uh, if that's true, he might be saying something like, you know, in the CLT, he might be saying, okay, you do want to change the status quo. Got to change my game here. Well, Jesus, if you destroy me, you're going to have to hurt him too. You destroy me, you can, you're going to have to destroy him. In other words, it would be better for him to be enslaved than to suffer the cost of freedom and liberation. Line number three. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this isn't the demon, like, ingratiating himself to Jesus. Like, all of a sudden, he turned a leaf and was like, oh, you're Jesus. Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) The Messiah, cast me out. Let's just do it. (laughs) He's not, like, happy right now. Uh, It was thought in that day, it was a common thought that exact knowledge of another person's name brought mastery over them. It was superstition. Uh, In other words, uh, I know you was a nervous attempt of this demon to try in the very last throes of this battle, battle, to bring Jesus under his power. It was tantamount to saying, I've got your number. I know you. This is not unlike what maybe some of us have experienced. I don't know if you've ever been like, you've just been in a slump in your life or you've made a lot of mistakes and now you're hitting, a, you know, hitting the upswing and you're trying to get back on your feet and someone just says that, that thing to you. Like, or maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's your own thoughts but it's a, a, a word of shame, right? Ah, I know you. I know what you're all about. You've done this before. You're doing it now and you'll do it again. I know all about you. It's a word of shame, attempting to bring people under their power. This is not unlike that. Perhaps you feel known today, but not in a noble sense. Perhaps who you are and what you've done is a source of shame to you and humiliation. And maybe it's so powerful inside you that you feel controlled by it. Controlled by your own setbacks. Controlled by the lies you tell yourself. Lies that you have been told by friends, family members, co-workers, bosses, enemies. Maybe it's a string of bad luck. It could be a variety of things that are pushing you down. You feel known, but not in a, a great sense. In the sense that this poor precious human man is feeling right now. The thing is, 
some of the things that we deal with, we can't change at all. We might be able to change some things, but we can't change our past. We can't change where we came from. We can't change what we've done. And for some of us, we are so stuck and trapped, we can't even change what we're in right now. This demonized man could not change his situation. He could not free his mind. He could not stop the oppressive powers upon him. He could not save himself. And at this point, at the lowest ebb and flow of his life, the son of the living God steps into his way to set his first captive free, as he said he would do in Luke chapter 4. Jesus would later call disciples. One of them was John. John would write a few books about Jesus. In one of them, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, he tells us, Jesus came for one reason, to, to destroy the works of the devil. What you're reading on right now is exciting. This is the beginning of a devil work destroying Messiah who needs to do nothing except speak a word. He whose words are not empty. There's a lot of things that this devil, this demon says, and we can go into all the nuances of what they mean, but that's, I don't think, the point. Luke wants to, and make no mistake about this, Luke is showing us all of this stuff here, this interaction, the words of this demon, the conflict here, because he wants us to see the absolute power of Jesus Christ over evil. He wants us to see a trembling demon making frantic, half-hearted, Hail Mary attempts to evade Jesus. And he wants us to see that it does not work. This is not, in other words, this is not dualism, okay? You know, that word meaning that there's forces of good and there's forces of evil in the world and they're both about equal, you know, they balance each other out and we hope that good wins but evil has, you know, an equal uh, opportunity to do so, you know. Dualism, basically Star Wars, you know. There's the good side, there's the, bad, there's the dark side and then there's a the force between them. They try to wield the force and hopefully the good side wins. Now, this is not Star Wars, I hope you know at this point. There's no force of this nature, there's no equality or dualism between evil and good, and praise God there's no Jar Jar Binks, there is no possibility for the devil to win. Luke wants us to see the absolute power and control of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ over the devil and over darkness. The darkness is no match for Jesus, and he is not just a rabbi. As we move through these verses, we see a more powerful word. Verse 35, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Look at that. Not only does he cast this, this oppressive spirit out, but every threat that it seems like the, the demon made before he was cast out is rendered null and void. He exerted no control over Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> his rebuttal, uh, there was no rebuttal by the demon. Uh, Jesus literally, uh, in the original language, literally says, be, be muzzled. Shut up. Get out. There's no incantations by Jesus. There's no fancy like legwork. He doesn't 
pray for hours on end. He says a sentence, and the demon obeys. There's a, a, a screech at the beginning, and he's out without a word. And his threat to the, to the man that he's occupying is disregarded, and the man is set free without any damage. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He has power and control, absolute power and control over the forces of darkness in the world. We end with the last few verses with the response. And what we're going to see here are two different responses, I think. And I share two different types of responses because they'll probably be the types of responses we have to choose from. And I pray that we would choose well. I pray that we would choose life. First response, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. What is this word? Whoa. Astonishment. And what are they astonished about? Not just the authority of his teaching as one who speaks from God because he's God in the flesh, but also his words are not empty. They come with power. Even demons are afraid of him. They'll do everything that he says. And yet here's the twist in the story. Capernaum, currently so infatuated by this man Jesus, so astonished at his word, gathering in crowds to make him king, will later in the Gospels reject him outright. Capernaum will be among those who completely reject the very person they think is astonishing. Why? Because Jesus doesn't just give astonishing words. He doesn't just deliver astonishing TED Talks, displays of miraculous power. He, with his same words, calls people out of their lives into a life with him. He heals their diseases, he frees their minds, he blesses, he sets free, he liberates the captive, he preaches the gospel, and he calls them into a life with him. A life that if we're to be perfectly honest and just read the Bible, is sometimes riddled with challenges. A life with Jesus will challenge your value system. You will find the things you thought were important to be confronted by what Jesus thinks is important. There will be confrontation. Your security in life will be confronted. Your sense of comfort and safety will be confronted. The things that we are told by the flood of words on a daily basis that are important and valuable, Jesus will confront and say, I've got something more valuable than all of those things, but you're going to have to leave what you thought was important behind to follow after me. His life, a life with Jesus, will challenge you at the most basic level, but it will also raise you to a new life, a life you never thought was possible, a life full of joy and satisfaction that you couldn't imagine, a life full of peace, a, a type of peace of mind that Paul described as a peace that surpasses even what we're able to comprehend with our human minds all available to the person who says, I want to follow Jesus. And yet it comes, again, not through the power 
and control that we see in this demon or in the Roman Empire, pushing people aside, climbing the ladder, grabbing and taking, asserting control, but in a a self-giving act of love seen most vividly in the cross of Jesus, where even in death, his words pack a punch. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. No wonder demons tremble, and religious mobs tried to kill him, and the marginalized loved him. No one spoke like this guy. No one did things like this guy. Not even death could threaten him. In fact, he would eventually use death, the most powerful weapon in the devil's arsenal, to give life to people that looked his way. Here are two responses we can, we can grab uh, to Jesus' words. One is Capernaum. What is this word? Which is really a safe response from people who think Jesus to be novel but don't want to change Uh, anything about their life to experience the type of life he offers. That's great, Jesus. What is this fascinating word? Do that again. There's another and I think far better response. And this one is in a different book. It's in John chapter 6 and it's from Peter. And this is right after the crowds are gathering around him. He's got a massive crowds, and this will be the last time Jesus gathers a crowd. He starts to speak, and his words are no longer comforting. They're challenging. And they're so challenging that people start leaving him. It says that his disciples started leaving him. Even his own brother, I believe it was James, left him at this point. He would later come back. All his disciples leave him, and Jesus turns, uh, John chapter 6, turns to Peter and says, do you want to leave me too? Peter's response, where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. And Peter would go on to follow Jesus for the rest of his life, even to death, even though he fell a few times along the way. Look at the difference. What is this word? Where else will I go? You alone have the right words. You whose words are not empty. There are times, you know, when the internet is useful to me for creating a healthy meal or healthy habits. There's also times where it doesn't help me. There's times where I need an actual human that's gone to school <laughs> to tell me, you know, what's wrong, whatever, with my body. There are times when the internet is useful when doing routine maintenance on a vehicle. But there are also times when I must throw myself at the mercy of my dad, who's able to restore a car from the ground up, because that's what he does. To throw myself at the mercy of a doctor who can fix broken pieces in my body, because that is what he or she does. In the same way, Information is a good thing. It's a tool. We need it to function. We learn, we adjust, we progress, we do better the next time, and it's awesome. But there are other times when our souls can only be satisfied and lifted up by a meaningful and powerful word that shoots and pierces through the mess. 
when we must throw ourselves upon the mercy of the one who is able to restore the human soul because that is what he does. And this Jesus would say in John chapter 5, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. When was the last time you listened to his word? One word from Jesus Christ can change your life forever. And perhaps this Messiah is speaking a word to you right now. He whose words are not empty. I want to end right there. Um, and, you know, as I said at the beginning, we normally take just a, a a chunk of time, dim the lights and worship together through song as a way of reflecting through lyrics that reinforce maybe what the scriptures are saying to us. I love doing that. Today I want to do something different. I just want to do something shorter, a little more personal, uh, and less noisy. I want to I want us to close together with a a song. Um, There was a there was a guy some time ago by the name of Carl, Carl Boberg. He uh, was a member of the Swedish Parliament, and he was taking a walk when all of a sudden a thunderstorm suddenly appeared out of nowhere. And after that thunderstorm, there was a severe wind that just kind of howled through where he was. And then almost instantly, he writes, everything stopped, clouds broke, and he looked out and, and, and saw a just beautiful, pristine, clear bay. And in that moment, these church bells started to ring, and he was just undone. Just had one of those moments, and instantly some words came to mind. And I want to s- sing with you those words, if you would join with me. How great thou art.